All right. Well, we can be opening up your Bibles to the letter to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, and we'll be in chapter 3 today. Uh, we've been studying through the letter to the church at Ephesus for a few weeks now, and we'll be continuing that for a few more weeks. And uh, so uh, I think it's been a good study so far. I hope you're enjoying it. hope you're able to glean some things from it or take some of the things away that you can apply to your lives that helps you to grow, helps you to be edified, and hopefully uh, be a, a better Christian uh, and, and, and more spiritual because of it. In the previous lesson, which well, last week, we saw Paul was about to start a second prayer for the Ephesians, right? And in verse 1 in chapter 3 there, he kind of starts it, but then he, he interrupts himself, right? He interrupts that prayer, and he's describing himself to those Gentiles who are now Christians in Ephesus as a prisoner of Jesus Christ for them. In other words, he's a prisoner of Jesus for the Gentiles, right? And uh, he doesn't want them to be troubled. I mean, he, he doesn't want them to be a concern, that concerned about it because, you know, he stresses the fact that his apostleship is to the Gentiles. And even with its problems, even with its tribulation, and we know Paul went through some tribulation, right? <clears throat> it's a gift to him through the wonderful grace of God. Isn't that wonderful that Paul, all the things that he went through, he still considers himself humble, the lowest of the saints, and he can love, show the love of God and preach to the Gentiles and saying, don't worry about me. I am a, I am a benefactor of the wonderful grace of God. And of course, we've talked about that many times, how how that's what we have to hold on to, right, in our lives. When we're going through things, when we're dealing with issues in this world, we can know we have the wonderful grace of God. His purpose was to preach among the Gentiles, as we've read in the uh, first part, of, in, this, in this interruption period, in the first part of chapter 3 there, to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable reaches of Christ. And we talked about how that's one of the major themes of this letter, right, that to, to, for Christians to understand the blessings they have in Christ, the rich blessings we have in Christ. And that's a, that's a theme that goes throughout the Scripture, right? You know, when we were studying John, we, we, every, every Sunday I tried to read the end of the letter of the book of John when he said, these have been written that you may have forgiveness of sin and that you may have abundant life. He wasn't talking about just an eternity with God, and of course we're going to have that He's talking about now, in your lives now. You can know God and have abundant life. The world thinks that's stupid, though, doesn't it? The world doesn't see it that way. The world says, get everything you can while you can, because you're only here for a while, and then it's gone. But we know we have that hope of eternal life. And by being a child of God, follower of God, we can live a life that's abundant, that's full, that we can know God and understand God and know the love that he had for us in sending his son. What a wonderful thing we have. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful life we can have in him. And you know, it's pretty easy to see it. If you live according to his word, if you live according to his commandments, you're going to stay out of trouble, right? You're not going to have a lot of issues. I mean, not, not, not to say you're not going to have issues. You know, we're not promised health and wealth. But there's a lot of things that people get into because they don't obey the commands, right? 
there's a lot of consequences that come from disobedience, right? From sin. And so you can kind of reason that out a little bit, right? Say, if you follow the commands of God, you're going to do well. Interesting how that works out. Then he goes on to say, he had boldness and access with confidence through his faith. And there is that, right? There is that faith that we have in the creator of the universe that he's going to keep his promises, right? That he's going to love us forever and ever and that we are children according to his word and we can live forever with him. If you got that, if you got that promise, if you fully believe it and your faith is robust, what does it matter when you go through things, right? Paul says, I have that boldness that boldness and access with confidence through faith. He had a great confidence that he knew where he was going, that he knew who his Savior was, that he knew who his God was. And because of that, nothing in this world mattered to him any more than that and could take that away and can cause him to be depressed, to, be, to stop what he was doing. Nothing was going to do that. We can have that same confidence. Now he's completed that brief interruption in that first part of chapter 3 there, and he's going to continue with that second prayer. He had the first prayer we read back in chapter 1, uh, around verses 15 to 23. And today, today we're going to talk about that second prayer that he has for the Ephesians, for, for, for the Gentiles. And he uses the phrase, for this reason, in there in verse 14, that kind of indicates how Paul is expressing this prayer in response to, the, to those things mentioned earlier, you know, such as the wonderful salvation by grace through faith, which we read about in chapter 2, right? Which is the work by Christ on the cross, whereby Gentiles can now become fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise. He's speaking pretty much to the Gentiles here, right? And easy to understand, Probably the majority, if not all, the folks in Ephesus that were Christians were Gentiles. There might have been a few Jews among them too. But he's preaching directly to them, saying, look, you now have the promise. You now have this great promise of redemption, of forgiveness, of abundant life, of a future, eternal future with the creator of the universe. And so with gratitude in his heart and God's grace, Toward the Gentiles, Paul is going to now pray on their behalf. And you might say, well, most of us, if not all of us in here, are Gentiles, right? Maybe some of you might have some Jewish heritage. I don't know. But I would imagine 99 point, maybe 99% of you are Gentiles. And so he's praying on our behalf in that effect too, right? Interesting. He gives the invocation here in verse 14. Let's read that beginning in chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, be rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him 
who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right. That's Paul's second prayer for the Gentiles, for those who are in Ephesus. How does he begin that prayer? What's his posture? I'm going to go through a few semantical things here that we deal with in prayer, and maybe, maybe we'll answer some questions you might have had. Why, why do we pray like we do? Why do we do certain things? What does Paul first do there in, chapter, in verse 14? He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father. Interesting. He gets down on his knees, right? So perhaps that's a posture that we might want to you know, consider if we don't do that sometimes. Uh, I don't know if anybody gets up on their knees here in, the, in, in our worship services, but I have been part of worship services where I saw people get up, get down on their knees in the pew and pray, right? Nothing wrong with that. It's interesting how Paul does that. In Luke 22, in verse 41, Jesus did the same thing. Went into the wilderness, bowed down on his knees and prayed to the Father. In Acts 9, in verse 40, Peter does the same thing. And then verses Acts 20 and 36 and 21 and 5, we read about Paul again getting on his knees and praying before the Father. Some of you may do that at night, I don't know, before you go to bed. Perhaps you get on your knees by your bedside and pray. I don't know, but that's a wonderful posture. It's a posture of what? Humility, right? Bowing down, lowering yourself before the God of the universe the God who created you, the God who loves you unconditionally, right? We have that posture. It does not appear that that's, though, the official posture. It doesn't have to be something that we do every time. In fact, there are other postures. First Kings 8, Solomon stood when he prayed to dedicate the temple. He stood and prayed out. So there's nothing wrong with standing and praying. First uh, Chronicles 17, David sat before the Lord when he prayed uh, about his kingdom. And then in Acts, Matthew 26, Jesus fell on his face in the garden. Remember that? And you can think about that, you know, perhaps that has to do a little bit with the situation you're in, right? I mean, think about Jesus in the garden. You know, he was sweating blood drops, right? Because he was so agonized. He knew what he was about to go through. He's prone on the ground in the garden, praying to the Father all night. Interesting how that can happen. So there's nothing, it's nothing wrong with standing, sitting, being prone. But Paul gets on his knees here, and I think that's a great example for us, an example that we can see throughout other scripture, right? Also, the address, something we need to notice here in verse 14 there, he says he prays to the Father. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, all right? When we pray, we should pray to the Father, all right? Now, have, have you ever been asked, is it okay to pray to Jesus? Or is it okay to pray to the Spirit? Or perhaps you've thought that, right? And you've got to think about God being the Godhead, right? You have the Trinity, the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're the one God, though, right? All are God. And so you, there, you'd say that the idea is, is that we need to pray to the Father. And there are many examples of that. We have that in verse chapter 3. If you turn over to chapter 5, look at verse 20. <coughs> Uh, what's, what, let's see what Paul does there. Uh, giving thanks always for all the things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There he 
praying to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. That should be part of it. We see that as an example. Then if you turn over to chapter 6, verse 18, Actually, verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So not only are we to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, but be in the Spirit in doing so. The Godhead, the one God, right? All three persons there together. Nothing wrong, though, with necessarily with praying to Jesus or praying to God. Remember the Artagon effect? We have an example of that if you want to turn over to Acts. And we'll look at that for a second. It's maybe something that you've wondered about. Acts chapter 7. And we're going to see what Stephen did as he was being martyred, stoned. Verse 40, 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And there was that Saul, the lowest of all the saints. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a low voice. And he says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So we, we have that example. We don't have much evidence other than that to say that you, it's okay to pray to Jesus or pray perhaps to the Spirit. We don't have any, any evidence of praying to the Spirit. But remember, the Father is the Creator. And you can think of the Father being the Creator, Jesus the Savior, the Spirit the Enabler. And so they are one, one God. And when you're praying to the Father, you're praying to God, the Father, the Godhead, the one God in three persons, all right? So that's an example of just what we need to look at there and what we need to do. Of course, in the example of the prayer that Jesus gave in Matthew 6, our Father who art in heaven, you have the Savior praying to the Father. And so that's really our example. That's really how we should be going about when we pray. That's our example of prayer. Whether it's on our knees, whether it's prone, whether it's sitting, standing, we should be praying to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, and we should be in the Spirit. What's that mean to be in the Spirit? That's a kind of a vague one, isn't it? That's kind of a fuzzy one. Praying to the Father, praying in the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, what's that mean exactly, to be in the Spirit? First of all, Paul talks a little bit about that in this prayer, all right? His petition there in verse 16 and 17 is interesting. Let's go back and read that again, verse chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul has mentioned earlier about God's power toward those who believe, right? We've talked about that already. We've talked about how you have great riches, you have the power of God in you, 
And he prays that the Ephesians might be strengthened with the might. Uh, such strength according to the riches of his glory. God's strength that has ministered, how? Well, he says here, through his spirit in the inner man. All right. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, let's read a couple other verses in, that we, we probably, probably more familiar to you. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and see what he says right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's read a verse there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And let's read beginning in verse 18. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He's writing to the Corinthians saying, do you not know that your body is the holy temple of God? How dare you join yourself with a harlot? How dare you, how dare you use your body to commit sexual sin? You've been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Let's see what he says about this stuff there. Beginning in Romans 8, uh, verse 11. He says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Amazing how he correlates that, right? He says, the spirit that raised Jesus Christ dwells in you. Yes, sir, did you have? No, okay. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to give according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have the spirit within us. That same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So, as Christians, as children of God, we have the same promise, right? We're going to be raised from the dead. If he did it for Christ, he's going to do it for you. And we need to put away the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body. Live by the Spirit. The purpose of the strengthening by the Spirit in our text is for a different purpose, perhaps, though. That's first hinted here in verse 17. He says, first, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith to the degree that God strengthens the believer's inner man. So it's said that Christ himself dwells in the heart of the believer. Now, obviously, Christ, the flesh, fleshly Christ, Christ doesn't live in our body, but the Spirit of God, through what Christ did, through that work, now dwells within those who are believers. Turn back over there to chapter 2 and see Ephesians, and let's read beginning in verse 19, just to remind ourselves of this. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, he's talking about the Gentiles there, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, <clears throat> in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Paul is telling the Gentiles that, guess what? The Jews had the law. They had their physical temple there in Jerusalem. But now that's changed. The temple is being built up among those who are believers. The temple of God is now within those who believe. It's not in a building. It's not in the temple in Jerusalem. It's within you, you Gentiles. You Gentiles didn't have the law. The Gentiles that didn't know Abraham. The Gentiles that didn't have that promise through Abraham. That was given to him to bless all nations. They're now part of that holy temple. Thus the Spirit is the instrumental agent by which God inhabits his church through the inner man. Interesting, right? And also, second, that they, he want, he's saying that they may be rooted and grounded in love. One work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to instill the love of God in the heart. For those of you who've been Christian a long time, I mean a long time, perhaps some of you, do you love God more now than you did when you first became a Christian? I mean, if you look back at it, can you say that? I mean, I remember when I was baptized, I thought, this is wonderful. I was on cloud nine, right? How can anything be any greater than this? But I didn't necessarily know God very well. I didn't know all the things that he was going to bless me with. And now, when I look back on some things and I can see some things happening in my life and think, wow, that had to be from God. <laughs> because things wouldn't have aligned like that just by chance, right? It wouldn't have been that random, right? I mean, in the job that I have right now, and I'm not saying this is miraculous or anything, but I got this job because the job I did have, I knew was going away, and I had to start looking. And back then, you know, you could, you, that's when you could first start getting online and putting your name on the websites to put your resume out there. And I wasn't having much luck with it, and a colleague of mine, who lived down in Fayetteville, walked up to one day and said, hey, here's a job opening. It's up here in, he said Duluth. It turned out it was Alpharetta. He said, I'm down here in Fayetteville. I ain't no way I'm driving up to Duluth every day to go to work. I said, okay. Well, I'll answer it. Ended up getting a job. If that guy hadn't been there that day, if he'd been sick, or if I hadn't showed up for work that day, who knows what would have happened, right? I might have been president, I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Who would want that job? <laughs> In fact, I think you've got to be a little crazy to want that job, but just saying. Anyway, I don't know if that was God's work in that, but the job I have now has been a wonderful blessing for me and my family. I'll put it that way. And I had a good job before, and I probably could have gotten another good job somewhere else, but I pretty much thank God was guiding me that through that, you know? And you can think back and say, well, it, it just randomly happened. It wasn't because of a connection I had with someone. Well, it kind of was. My colleague I worked with, I guess. But he didn't have any pull at the job. <sighs> it's interesting how things work out in your life, isn't it? And things like that, if you think back on it, you know, 
perhaps that helped your love for God grow. Perhaps now your love for God is much greater, not necessarily because of what God did for you, although he's done a lot, but because of all the years of service that you've now put in, all the years of prayer. Think about that. All the years of study, right? You've been growing, even though you may not have realized it. You've been growing spiritually. And your love should be greater, just as Paul's praying here for those who are in Ephesus, that their love would be strengthened because of the grace of God. Turn over to Romans chapter 5, and I want to read a verse from there. This is a good one. First, chapter 5, let's just begin in verse 1, Romans 5. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in your heart, in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, we get the love from the Spirit that allows us to persevere and we grow. Yes, sir. Good question. Do you have an answer for us? Absolutely right. Preaching. John's a preacher. He's preaching. And that's exactly right. We've talked about it many times. You think of it, I don't know if you've ever heard the, I've heard it talked about many times, the triangle, particularly in a marriage, you know, husband and wife coming together with a triangle. In each part, you have the uh, study of the word, prayer, and service. All three parts of that triangle have to be together and pointing up to heaven. If one part of that triangle is broken, you lose that. 
And he's exactly right. That's how we grow. When we became children of God, we were babes. We needed the milk, right? But we had to grow. And that was through prayer, study, and service. We are doers of the word. Not just studiers, not just prayer people. Although that's pretty great. We're also doers. We are to be in service in the kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom, just like we're citizens of the United States. And we have jobs to do. We need to be about doing them, just as Brother John said. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5 there. Let's read something else that Paul said. <clears throat> chapter 5, and let's begin in verse 1 there. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become, un if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Talking about the old law, basically. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we... Through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And that love that's been poured out on us through the Spirit in the inner man. Our work of the, Holy, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the believer, is to instill the love of God in our heart. And when strengthened by God through the Spirit in the inner man... One becomes, as it said there, rooted and grounded in love. Okay? And that gets manifested how? Through our love for each other. Through our love for God, through the service we do for each other, for our willingness to do for others as they have done for us. Well, verse 18, 19, he goes on and talks about something else there with this love that he wants the Ephesians or the Gentiles, and that's to comprehend the love of Christ. In other words, that we may be able to have the strength to comprehend or grasp or understand the love that Christ has for us. He wants us to know everything about that wonderful love. He wants us to understand it. But then he says, the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Interesting phrase. And you can think about it in the world. Well, yeah, that makes sense. But how does that refer to me? I mean, I can understand the love of Christ. He died for me. I would have no hope without that. Jesus even said, there's no greater love than a man lay down his life for another. Right? But in this life, you see, we still cannot grasp that full love. That full love that God had for us. Oh, we can grow, we can understand it, and he's praying for that to happen through the Spirit that's living in the inner man, that we might know that love that passes knowledge, but it's not going to be till eternity, even then, that we're going to know full, fully the knowledge of the love of God. When we were studying angels in here, and some of you weren't here for that, and we were talking about the picture we saw in Daniel and, and other, other books about what heaven is like and how God was set up with the angels 
serving him, the cherubim and the seraphim and the multiple, the, the, the host uh, singing out praise for God. We can't fathom that in our flesh, right? We can't understand how that's going to be, what that's going to be like. We can only imagine it. And that's the same with the love. We can grow, understand the love of God, and Paul is praying for that through that spirit. But even still, his love passes our knowledge, and especially the world's knowledge. But there is a real knowledge of Christ that is possible and can be increased through the spirit that lives in the inner man. It's only as we begin to know that love that passes knowledge that we begin to see the last part of this prayer that he has here. And he says to be filled with all the fullness of God. That's his objective, his goal, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. As they are strengthened by God, the Father, which is through the Spirit, the Enabler, which is through the, which, which and then uh, we have Christ dwelling in our hearts. The help of all the members of the Godhead, then one, us, is filled the more, and we can begin to comprehend the wonderful love of Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And that's Colossians 2, verse 9. The one God with the three members. By the way, I don't know if you wore green on St. Patty's Day this week, but I, and I'm not... I'm not saying St. Patrick was any great person, but supposedly one of the things he had was that's where the shamrock came from. Did you know that? And the shamrock he supposedly used when he brought Christianity to Ireland to explain the Godhead, the three leaves on the, on the shamrock. Who knew? He also banished the snakes, apparently. Who knew? I don't know if that's a true story, but if you ever see a mosaic of St. Patrick somewhere, one hand he's got a shamrock. On the other hand, I think he's got a cross or something usually or something like that. <clears throat> the one God and the three persons. We have the fullness of God bodily living in us. Yeah, his spirit. Christ Jesus living in us. And you could say God the Father living in us. We become children of God. That's Paul's petition to the Ephesians. That they may be strengthened by that spirit of God and they can comprehend the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. Is God able to fulfill this petition? <laughs> no doubt. And Paul even says so in those last two verses. In the doxology of his prayer, he says, Glory to God for what he is able to do. As Paul describes, because to God he does so for what he is confident God is able to do. As expressed by Paul, God's ability to do is exceedingly abundantly above all all that we ask or think. You see, he's even able to do things more than we even comprehend for us. More than we can ask, more than we can think about, according to the power that works in us. What does that mean exactly? Well, glory to God in the church by Christ Jesus forever. In the church, the believers, where the uh, Spirit of God lives. We are the glory of God. God is glorified because of his church. Paul says the church is the means by which much glory can be given to God. He says that there in those last two verses. 
Certainly Paul's prayer is answered that all saints may be able to comprehend the love of Christ. The church will have the potential to bring much glory to God, right? Of course, that potential is to come only by Christ Jesus. And if it does, then it will be throughout all the ages, world without end. You see, the church began at Pentecost, but it's still here, right? And it will be here throughout the world without end. Do we desire to give God that glory through all the ages, the world without end? Well, in view of the first three chapters of Ephesians, we ought to. I just said the theme that Paul has there is understanding the great blessings, the riches we have in him. He uses that phrase over and over and over, in Christ Jesus, in him. We have wonderful blessings, wonderful promises, and we can have abundant life. The world don't see it that way, but we can. He designed you. He created you. He gave you commands to live by. He gave you promises if you do that. What else could you want? How can we be sure to be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, if we're already a Christian, and I'm, I believe most of you, if not all, are, we should start first with a prayer like Paul. That we be filled with the Spirit in the inner person so that we can understand the love of God more and more every day and be like Paul and understand the fullness of God. For one who's not a Christian, well, today's as good as any to become a child of God. All right.